You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. To repair the world is the title of the sermon. And our, our text today that comes to us from the lectionary is John chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Let's look at it together. It's Jesus' encounter with the women at the well in Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's an interesting phrase. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan village, a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jews do not share things in commons, common with Samaritans. Now, we're not, we're not going to read the rest of the story. I'm going to be referring to it over and over again throughout the sermon, but it's quite lengthy. It's, it's the longest passage of the week we've ever had. So, but I do want us to zip to the very last verse in the story, verse 42. They, and they here refers to the entire village, the entire Samaritan town. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So this story concludes with the salvation not only of a woman, but the salvation of an entire town that comes to believe and confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That phrase, that idea, that confession, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, it's a recurring theme in John's writings. By that I mean his his gospel, the gospel of John, but also the first epistle of John. He uses that phrase a lot. It's something he seems, he can't get it out of his head. He's fascinated, he's obsessed with this idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And i got to tell you, in these last few years of my life, I've gotten to be pretty fascinated with this idea too. I've been, from the very beginning of my life, I've been swimming in the waters of Christianity. There's never been a season in my life where I wasn't in church somewhere. And ever since I can remember, I, you know, I've always believed and confessed that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I'm not sure I always knew exactly what that meant, but I believed it, and I confessed it. But at this season of my life, I have never believed it more deeply, more thoughtfully, more passionately, and more seriously. I truly believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. But when I say it like that, it can sound trite. It can sound like a cliche, especially in an American evangelical church like this one, for a pastor to say, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. For some, it can come off like 
ho-hum. Yeah, we've heard that a billion times. Move on. And I think part of my job as an American pastor is to take some of these terms, like born again last week and savior of the world, to take some of these terms and liberate them from the world of cliché so that we can hear them freshly and hear them deeply and recover some of the edge of the gospel message of the New Testament. So that's what I want to try to do today. This story begins with Jesus and his disciples on a journey. They're, they're beginning way up in northern Israel in a region that we call Galilee. And they're traveling south down to the southern region of Judea. They're on their way to Jerusalem. But sandwiched between Galilee and Judea is another region called Samaria. Now the Samaritans, and that is to say residents of Samaria, while they were somewhat ethnically related to the Jews, they were really considered a different ethnicity altogether. And although their religion was originally formed from within Judaism, it eventually went beyond that. And so the Samaritans were really considered a different ethnicity and a different religion altogether from the Jews. And to just put it quite bluntly, the ancient Jews and the ancient Samaritans hated one another. There was this deeply entrenched hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, not so much unlike the modern-day hostility between Israelis and Palestinians, very similar to that in some ways. Well, Jesus and the disciples, they're traveling through Samaria. In fact, it says he had to go through Samaria. I think, that's a, I think that's a clue to us of what he's up to here. They could have gone around Samaria. Most Jews would go around Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. And they're walking through Samaria, and it's um, around the middle of the day. It's noon. And they stop. They're, they're around the outskirts of a particular Samaritan village called Sychar. And they stop, and Jesus takes a breather. He, he, he finds himself a well to sit by. It happens to be Jacob's well. And the disciples go into the village to go buy some food. Jesus takes a break, and he's thirsty, and he's weary from his journey. It shows you his humanity. The noonday sun is beating down. And as he's sitting there, at some point, there's a Samaritan woman who comes walking towards him, approaching this well. She's got her water pot. She's going to draw some water. You know, I, I think it's worth adding here as an aside, having running water pumped into our homes is a miracle. <laughs> I mean, you just have to transport yourself to a different time or a different place in the world right now. <laughs> Well, I mean, think about it. All the water you need to drink, all the water you need to bathe with, all the water you need to cook with or whatever else, you got to pull it up out of a well every day. And so this woman comes to the well, and she's got her pot. And Jesus addresses her, and he says, uh, hey, give me a drink. And she's stunned that this Jewish man, a rabbi no less, would deign to speak to her. She's like, how about that? How is it that you, a Jewish man, would bother addressing me, a lowly Samaritan woman? And Jesus says, if you knew who it was who's asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water that would, 
turn into this well deep on the inside of you and it would burst forth and spring out bursting forth into eternal life and if you just take one drink of this water that the son of man has you'll never thirst again he's talking about eternal life that is a different kind of life the the kind of life that finds its continuation in the resurrection the kind of life we were meant to live and share with one another but somehow somewhere we lost it along the way jesus says that's what i'm giving out right now and uh, she says, well, give me some of that. I'd like some of that living water you're talking about. You know, I'm about to wear myself out coming to this well day after day after day. So if you've got something like that, I- I'm, I'm interested. I want some. I'm ready for it. Now, you're free to disagree with me, but I think she's like Nicodemus. I, I think she understands the metaphor. I don't think this woman is dumb. I don't think she's... Assuming Jesus is talking about literal magic water that if she just drinks it, she's never going to be physically thirsty again. Any more than Nicodemus thought that Jesus was literally telling him to go back into his mother's womb and be born again. I think think this is an intelligent woman. She understands the metaphor and she's responding by metaphor. She's saying to Jesus, you know, all my life I've been coming to the well. Time and time and time again, and I'm still thirsty. It's not satisfying me. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So if you've got something better, I'm, I'm open. I'm ready. And Jesus says, well, great. Go call your husband and bring him back. I'll explain it to both of you at the same time. And she says, well, sir, I, I don't have a husband. He says, you're exactly right. You have had five husbands, and... Now you're just living with a guy. And by the way, I don't sense at all any condemnation here in Jesus' response to her. None at all. He's just making her aware of the fact that he understands her plight and what her life has been. He's saying, yeah, I know you've been going to the well time and again. And it's not satisfying. So there's no sense in trying to find who's at fault here or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is that things were just not right in her life. She had not found what she had been looking for. She says, uh, well, I can tell right now that you're a prophet, which is kind of her way of saying, uh, let's move this over to the area of religious debate. (laughs) And being a Samaritan woman, you know, she was well-schooled in all of the debate points between Jews and Samaritans, so she just launches into it. She says, you know, you Jews, you claim that the place where we must worship is over there in Jerusalem. You got your fancy temple and all. But let's not forget that the original patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all worshiped in these mountains. And this is where they built altars. Not over there in Jerusalem where, you know, that's where the Jebusites were and and then eventually David conquers it and, and him and Solomon are ruling from there. But long before David and Solomon, the originals, the OGs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, This is where they worship, Mount Gerizim. This is where they built their altars. And Jesus says, well, ma'am, let me explain that. You know, you're you're a little bit off in the the way that you worship. You you Samaritans, you're a little bit confused in the way you worship. But we we Jews, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And, And by salvation, he's referring to God's plan to save humanity and redeem the world. It's a plan that started all those years ago with Abraham and it finds its culmination in God's Messiah. 
And that's what he's talking about. He says salvation is from the Jews. He doesn't mean salvation is exclusively for the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews, and it's meant to go out to the whole world and embrace whosoever will. I love the songs that we sang today. They have that global emphasis. I, I was paying attention, Daniel. I noticed your work there. Because it's a global vision. And he says, you know, this, this debate, this whole debate about which mountain, which place, which temple, which edifice, that's really not the point anymore. In fact, it really never was the point. But this thing that's been churning ever since Abraham, it's finding now, we're arriving at the culmination, the age of Messiah, he's telling this woman. We're arriving at the culmination of this plan that began all the way with Abraham And it's no longer going to be about places and mountains and temples and structures or anything like that because God's doing a new thing and he's raising up a new people who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be based on ethnicity. It's not going to be based on geography. Jew, Samaritan, it doesn't matter. It's going to be based on faith in God's Messiah. And as the prophets foretold, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth. The way the waters cover the sea. That's what he's communicating to this woman. Now look at verse 25. Look at her response. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. That word Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Watch this. Jesus, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That phrase right there, watch this, I, I who speak to you am he. What you're hearing right there is extremely rare in the Gospels. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus consistently declines to just outright announce his identity as God's Messiah. Even with his disciples, he's very coy about it. He's, I don't know if coy is the right word. He's very careful with even them. I think the first time he even mentions and affirms the idea that he's Messiah is right before his transfiguration. And he certainly never talks about it openly and publicly and absolutely never with somebody who's in power until at the very end when he's on trial and Caiaphas, the high priest, puts him under oath and says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, "Uh, it is as you have said. But consistently Jesus tended to keep it quiet and every so often when somebody would get the revelation he would say like shh don't go telling nobody he would use better grammar than that you don't don't go telling anybody but here in the gospel of John there are two times where Jesus comes right out and he tells someone that he's God's Messiah and in both instances it's somebody who's on the margins of society He does it in the next chapter, chapter 5, with a blind beggar. And then he does it here with this Samaritan woman who's been married five times. He comes out and says point blank, I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one who the world itself, even creation itself, has been waiting for. I'm the one God has sent into this world to make right a world gone wrong. I am the Savior of the world. And this woman gets so excited, she literally drops everything. She leaves her water pot, and she runs back into the town, and she announces to the town, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done. 
And the whole town goes out to meet this Jewish rabbi. This Samaritan village goes out to go talk to this Jewish guy. And they're impressed with him too. And they invite him to stay. And, uh, you know, that's something that doesn't always happen for Jesus in Samaria. <laughs> There's another story you remember later on in his ministry where once again they're traveling through Samaria and there's a village, a Samaritan village, who will not receive them. They reject them and say, nope, we don't want you here. You're Jews. Get away. Keep walking down the road. And you remember James and John get so furious, so angry, they ask Jesus permission to call down fire from heaven, which kind of seems a little presumptuous. But there's something different about this village. They, they, um, they saw something else. They, they sensed something different, and they want him to stay. And so Jesus stays for two days in the city of Sychar. And I've often wondered, what were those two days like? What were they doing? First of all, what were the disciples thinking? This is something they've never done in their lives. They would have never even fancied the idea of actually spending a couple nights in a Samaritan village. It's stretching them. They're uncomfortable with this. And evidently, James and John were still uncomfortable with it later on. It took them a long time to warm up to the Samaritans. But the Samaritans sure warmed up to Jesus. And I wonder, what was Jesus doing those two days in Sychar? I assume he, he probably healed the sick. That seemed to be a staple of Jesus' ministry everywhere he went. But you know what? It doesn't necessarily tell us that. But here's what it does say. And this is profound to me. This Samaritan village, they believe Jesus is the Messiah of God based on what they heard. It wasn't what Jesus did. It was what they heard. Something about the message Jesus brought that struck them to the core and said, we believe this man is the savior of the world. What was Jesus talking about with these Samaritans for two days? That I don't think is a mystery. I think Jesus talked about what he always was talking about, and that's the kingdom of God. By that I mean God's way of rearranging a world that's gone wrong. How many of you know human society is broken? I don't have to convince you. Turn on the news. Human society is fundamentally broken beyond human repair. We don't know how to live together well. But Jesus announces God is intervening and the rule and reign of God is coming. And he is setting right a world gone wrong. And he talks about it to this Samaritan village. And they say, that makes sense. And they believe his message. Look at verse 42 one more time. I just, I think this is something worth underlining in your Bible. They said to the woman, it is no longer because what you have said that we believe. We have heard the message of the kingdom. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. That, that blows me away. How could a Samaritan village, an entire village of people who culture says, no, they're our enemies, and he's our enemy. How can they spend just a little bit of time with him and be so persuaded? This man's the Savior of the world. I think it had something to do with how they began to see Jesus as the healer of hostilities. That this intractable divide between Jew and Samaritan, somehow Jesus was the bridge that could pull all of that together. And they begin to say to one another, man, if he can do that, this man could be the savior of the world.
Because ever since Cain and Abel, we've been a human race defined by our hostilities. I mean, just think about our own country, our own society right now. Our identity is largely formed and shaped by who we hate and who we're against and who we oppose. And we've learned to arrange our world around this system. It's a system of death. At the center of it is death. It's the law of sin and death. And whoever can save humanity from this kind of arrangement will be the Savior of the world. And as Christians, we confess that to be Jesus, the Christ. The Jewish people had a concept for this. They had a term for it. I want to show it to you on the screen. They had a term for this. Maybe you've heard it before. Tikkun olam. Everybody say tikkun olam. Tikkun olam. And it means to repair the world or to mend the world. It's a Jewish concept with deep, deep roots that spring forth into the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, tikkun olam has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, and he is the one that his father has sent into the world to mend the world, to repair the world. And this world needs repair. This world needs salvation. This world needs mending. And the answer to that is what we mean when we confess that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Unfortunately, though, what I think what's happened in some corners of American Christianity is we've taken this gospel, this New Testament kingdom gospel, and we've shrunken it down, we've privatized it, and we've individualized it so that it's no longer necessarily about Jesus being the Savior of the world, but it's more like Jesus saves us from the world. And if you follow these instructions, follow this formula, say this prayer, here's your ticket to heaven. Jesus is like a train conductor that gives you the ticket to heaven and you put it in your back pocket and when you die, you'll fly off into heaven and eventually uh, God's going to kick the world into the garbage can. Maybe that's foreign to you. That's kind of the message I grew up with. And it bears no resemblance to the gospel message of the New Testament. It's, it's absolutely not what the apostles meant when they proclaimed Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Now, there is a world that is condemned. There is a world that will not last. There is a world that is passing away. The New Testament calls that Babylon. It's the world as it has been arranged around the supreme values of greed and lust and power, all enforced by violence. That's what the New Testament calls Babylon, and that is condemned, and that is going to be destroyed. That is passing away. That world will not continue on in the age of resurrection. Hallelujah. But God's good creation and God's idea of human society, that is good, and God's going to save it. God's going to redeem it. God's going to salvage it. He's going to make it right, and he's going to do so through the person of Jesus Christ. And so as a, as a church, as Village Church, we're celebrating 78 years. As we continue on for the next 78 years, we want to remain clear on what is God's mission in the earth? What is God up to? What is God's project? What is God wanting to do? And then what is our role in that? What is our vocation? What is our calling? How do we participate in God's mission? This is something we've got to be absolutely clear on because if we don't have clarity on what our calling is right now in the world, at best we'll just kind of bumble around and make a mess of things. At worst, we'll become an obstacle standing in the way of what God wants to do. So what is our calling? Not just as a church, but as the church universal. What is our calling? So I'm going to give you two things that our calling is not 
and then we'll close with what our calling is. Number one, here's what we're not called to be. Number one, the church is not called to conquer the world. That's the essence of the second temptation. Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago. We're not called to conquer the world. Well, Ryan, you know, Paul says in, in Romans 8.37 that we're more than conquerors. Yes, but not in that sense. Because you've got to back up one verse earlier in 36, verse 36, where Paul says, For his sake we are killed all day long. We are like lambs led to the slaughter. So we do conquer as we follow the lamb, but of course we, we don't conquer in the way of the conquistadors and the crusaders and Constantine with his sword. And I think most here could agree with that. I've been uh, meditating this week on the uh, irony and the difference between Emmanuel and Gutmint Uns, these two terms. Maybe you're familiar with one of them. Maybe you're familiar with Emmanuel. How many of you are familiar with the term Emmanuel? Somebody tell me out loud, what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. God with us. That's exactly right. Gutmint's uns is a German ter term that means the same thing. It means God with us. So Emmanuel, Gutmint uns, God with us, they all mean the same thing, but these two terms have been applied in radically different ways, and they have polar opposite histories. Emmanuel is Isaiah's prophetic, poetic revelation of Messiah as the Prince of Peace, as God in solidarity with the human race. Gutmint uns became the Nazi slogan that was emblazoned on the belt buckle of every Nazi soldier during World War II. I want to show you a picture of it just so you'll believe me. So here you go. This was their slogan that they would put on their belt buckle, Gutmint uns, God with us. See, that's what can happen when God with us all of a sudden becomes God on our side and against them. It's the mentality that James and John had when they came across that Samaritan village who wouldn't welcome them, and they're like, Jesus, can we nuke them? <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to mention this. I was, um, I was driving on the road one day. This is a long time ago. I was driving on the road one day, road one day and uh, there was a car, and on the back of the car there was a bumper sticker. And it said something like, follow me to Faith Bible Church or something. I'm making up the church name. I don't remember. But it said something like that. Follow me to Faith Bible Church. And I thought, man, what a, what a pleasant uh, bumper sticker. That's wonderful. On the opposite end of the bumper, there was another bumper sticker that said, nuke Iran. <laughs> nuke Iran. I'm thinking, man, there's some discipleship that needs to take place in this person's life. Follow me to Faith Bible Church, unless, of course, you're from Iran. In that case, I want to blow you off the face of the planet. <laughs> Jesus looks at James and John and says, I don't, you don't even know what spirit you're of. That's the spirit of Gutmint Uts. So we're not called to be conquerors. We follow the Lamb who is Emmanuel, who is God in solidarity with the human race. Conquering in the form of Caesar is out of the question. We cannot do that. Everybody say Amen. All right, so that's the first ditch we've got to avoid falling into. We're not called to conquer the world. But there's another ditch on the other side of the road that we've also got to avoid. Number one, we're not called to conquer the world. Number two, we're not called to escape the world. Too many Christians have a theory of the end of things that is contrary to the good news of the New Testament gospel. The blessing of the good news, I'll just say it very clearly, the blessing of the good news is not we're going, the blessing of the good news is he's coming. 
He's coming to set right a world gone wrong. So in unison with Scripture, we, we, we cry out, come quickly, Lord, not zap us out of here. He's coming. Revelation 21, 22, he's coming to set right. The new Jerusalem comes from heaven to, to earth. He's coming to set right a world gone wrong. But in the meantime, we don't just stand around with our hands in our pockets, whistling and saying, well, someday Jesus will come back and he'll fix everything, so we'll just wait around until he does. No, right now, as I've said many times, we are called to be the first fruits of the coming harvest. We're called to be the preview of the coming attraction, giving people a glimpse of what the age to come is like when all is made right. Right now, we are called to be a preview of that, which means we're supposed to roll up our sleeves and get involved right now in what God's doing today. That's the invitation of the gospel. It always has been. So we're not called to conquer the world. We're not called to escape the world. Those are two ditches on either side of the road we've got to avoid falling into. But it begs the question, what is our calling? We're called to help Christ heal the world. We are not conquerors. We are not escapists. We are healers. Actually, to be more accurate, Jesus is the healer. We are the agents of healing. We are his hands and feet in the world making right a world gone wrong. And that's going to culminate whenever he returns. It could happen at any point. I'd love for it to happen at the end of this sermon. <laughs> but Lord, let me finish this sermon first. But that's what Village Church is up to. That's what we've been doing for 78 years. So I look at this room. I see Chris and Terry Chapman, who work with Wycliffe Bible Translators, translating the Bible for, for the deaf all around the world in different cultures. John and Asha Cleophas, who were working in India, Pastor training and this wonderful orphanage and this amazing outreach that they're part of that, that so many of you have been invested in for a long time. And Andy and, and Chelsea Rotuno and Jesse and Elizabeth Carell working at Gleanings where they're feeding the hungry around the world, not just physically but spiritually as well. Tim Wood, Ometepec, Mexico with this amazing Christian school and outreach in Mexico. And on and on it goes. What are, world Vision. Let me mention World Vision. Many of you guys are involved in this marathon that's coming up next week. We're going to be praying for all of our marathon runners and walkers and crawlers. And, um, yeah. But I, I, I reached out to Suzanne for an update. You guys have raised over $31,000, which makes it possible. Yeah, let's go ahead. Which makes it possible to provide clean drinking water for over 620 children for a lifetime. World Vision throughout Los Angeles has raised over a million dollars this year. See, what's happening? What are we doing? This is what it looks like to be agents of healing in the world. We're not conquerors. We're not escapists. We're healers. Dr. Jesus, we are the tools and instruments in his hands that he is using to make right a world gone wrong. And that's what we want to do. That's what we've been doing for 78 years, and that's what we want to continue doing, joining in God's mission. I want to close with this. I want to put a picture on the screen. And I just want you to study that picture for a moment. I found this online. You look at this house, and um, it's pretty thoroughly broken. It's messed up. It's dilapidated. And... Um, this house that you're looking at, it's going to represent for us something today. It's going to represent the world. And by world, you know, I, I'm not necessarily just referring to nature, but it includes that because Paul includes that. He says all creation is groaning in anticipation 
So even creation itself is included in God's vision of making things right. But it includes human society, you know, this social arrangement where we're all sharing this society, this world together. And we all agree that our, our world, human society, is fundamentally broken. It's been permanently, severely damaged, I should say. And somebody's come along and they've put one of those red signs on it that says condemned. But I'm convinced it was the devil. Because the scriptures say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved, redeemed, restored, made right. His son, after all, was a carpenter, wasn't he? And Jesus, the carpenter, gets sent to this house and he says, no, 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 no. I'm not here to condemn this house. I'm here to salvage it, to repair it, to mend it, to make it right, to make it livable again, to make it habitable again. The world formed and framed by Cain is almost uninhabitable. We've almost made our world uninhabitable in every respect. And that is what is condemned. But the idea of human beings living together in a real, fulfilling life under King Jesus, that's God's idea. And that's going to be salvaged, it's going to be saved, it's going to be repaired, and it's going to be restored. And it's the Jewish idea of tikkun olam, to repair the world. And it's what Jesus Christ does. And so we at Village Church, for the next 78 years, we want to be working with Jesus to help repair the world. That's our task. And that's the gospel invitation that I want to leave you with today. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.